Acts chapter 10, verses 11 to, or 1 to 33. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and what he stared, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him, he had departed. He called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time and said, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up to, at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day they rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen, amen. That was a long one. You can all go home now. Let's pray. Jesus, we are thankful for your word and even uh, for those who are willing to read it. Thank you for Liam and his willingness to stand with me this morning. Uh, Lord, we, we just rejoice that your word and this story is so timely 
for all of us to hear and begin to believe something different about you and therefore something very different about ourselves. Thanks for making us ready with worship. Keep going, Lord. We give you permission. We give you access. We invite you in. Have your way in us. In the matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So what makes something unclean? It might sound like an odd question, but when you consider physically, uh, when you exercise, you get really sweaty, right? And uh, if you have teenage boys like I do, uh, you know that unclean has a particular odor to it, right? Um, also, when you do some yard work, like these two knuckleheads outside, uh, when, when, you, when you get dirty and sweaty and hot, you, you can get unclean. Or how about when you do sports and you have equipment that never gets washed for years and decades and centuries? Um, it smells kind of funky, right? So unclean when it comes to us physically is something that we're well acquainted with. But unfortunately, we're also well acquainted with the notion of being unclean relationally. When, when we are unclean, unclean is a shame word. Unclean says that there's something that has been done to us or something that we have done or something broken in us that is unchangeable, unfixable, unlovable, and that is who I am. It is shame. Shame is the identity language. It's not just my actions. It's my very being. Shame carries with it this notion that we've talked about before in the book of Acts of hopelessness. There is no power to change. This is just who I am. What am I supposed to do if this is my life? And is it any wonder then that in our culture, because of this idea of hopelessness, this reality of hopelessness, what our culture has encouraged us to do is to call unclean, clean to mar the line, to actually reverse the order, and to say that things that are actually not good, not okay, not actually best for any of us, are good and right. Do you see this picture up here of a drag queen reading stories to little kids with horns coming out of his head? Do you see that picture? Have you seen these realities before? Friends, this shocking image is not meant to offend you. It's meant to open our eyes to two parallel realities at the same time. The first is that there is a big picture rebellion that we do as humanity that says to God, I'm going to make myself in my own image. I can be whoever I want. That has been the lie from the beginning. Nothing is new. And at the very same time, there is a deep-seated hopelessness for folks who are stuck in systems and cultures and even religions that simply condemn without a way forward, that simply say, yeah, you're just broken. You're just messed up. You just don't fit in. And there's no way forward. So what our culture does and what our culture is currently doing is says, well, then we need to redefine the rules here. We need to call good what is not good. We need to call healthy and normal what is not healthy or normal. 
We need, to, we need to start redefining things like criminals with oppressed. Now listen, this is not to say that there aren't systems of oppression that need to be looked at. It's simply to say, even if you are a product of that system of oppression, if you keep making the same wrong decision, there's personal responsibility that needs to also be taken into account. When we think about homeless and unhoused and the mentally ill and the sexually deviant, a lot of those things go together. We want to take the sting out of homelessness as if somehow it's cool and in vogue to be homeless. If you look at a lot of the cities around our country, there are huge populations of the homeless and the media and our culture wants to say, that's cool, look at how much fun they're having. Have you ever been homeless? Have you ever lived with homeless people? Have you ever interacted with homeless people? There's nothing fun or sexy about that, friends. We need not remove the sting, but yes, the stigma when it comes to homelessness. Is there a way out? Is there hope? That's the ache underneath what is a very destructive movement right now in our culture. Same thing with the mentally ill and the sexually deviant. Listen, if I have multiple personality disorder, I have several different people living inside of my head. If you come to me and you say to me, hey, that's just the way God made you, that's good, you're okay. You know what that isn't? Loving. You know what that isn't? Caring. And you know who knows that more than anyone else? Me. If I'm walking around with a broken arm and I go see Dr. Cox and he says, your broken arm's not a big deal, it's good, it's actually the way you were made, just enjoy. The pain of that broken arm tells a very different story than what this doctor would want to tell me otherwise. In our culture, for us to say what is unclean is now clean is simply a lie, big picture, but it's a lie that hurts the very people we are claiming to help. It is not true, and it's not of God. But friends, this hopelessness, hear this, is not of God either. And so whether it's you yourself or someone that you know and love who's stuck in hopelessness of any form or fashion, even if it's not on this screen, please know that God has brought you here for a reason because he wants you to know that where you think you're unclean and where you think there's no way forward, our God has made a way. Our God is the way. And our God is pursuing you even today. It's why you're here. And please hear this. It's why you're welcome to be here. No matter how you've come in, no matter what you're carrying. This morning, we're continuing through our sermon series that we're calling The Mission of the Spirit, looking at the book of Acts. And boy, has God been meeting us and rocking our worlds. And so if, if this is your first Sunday here, hi, my name's Will, <laughs> and this is what we do here, because our God is great and mighty, and he's better than we think, and his love meets us deeper than we anticipated, and he is able to change the things about us that we have longed to change but could not do on our own. He's not calling us to do it on our own. He's calling us to surrender our right to insist that he does it our way. If you haven't been here, um, just a little review. There was this guy named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago. He's God, put on, the put on our flesh to walk in our shoes, to bear our burdens. They watched him do incredible things, miracles, 
healing sick people, raising dead people. They watched with their own eyes. And then they literally watched as he was brutally murdered on Good Friday and then picked himself himself up out of that grave on Easter Sunday and was walking around with them for 40 days thereafter. They saw that with their own eyes. And now Jesus turns to them in the book of Acts and says, because you've seen and now received the Holy Spirit, you will be my witnesses. You will be spirit-empowered witnesses of a God who's able to do what by nature Human nature, we are absolutely not able to do. It is beyond us. And if you're thinking, this sounds crazy, that's because it is. It's crazy for natural beings to think about doing supernatural things without a supernatural being. But when supernatural things happen and natural beings say, there's no possible way that happened, who's sitting with the, their head in the sand in the corner pretending? It's not God. It's us. And this morning, God wants to invite each and every one of us to get our heads out of the sand a little bit, to actually do the very thing that we've been singing for weeks, surrender. Give up the right to be in control and watch what he does. Last week, we talked a little bit about that from this angle, that oftentimes when we pray for miracles, especially with healing when it comes to friends and family that we love, but in any way, shape, or form, when we pray, oftentimes God gives us a merciful no in order to make room for a better yes. A merciful no in order to make room for a better yes. Aeneas, this guy who was paralyzed for eight years, Seven plus years of hearing no, so that what? At just the right time, God could heal him so that an entire city could be saved in Jesus' name. That's a better yes. A better yes. As you've been leaning in, friends, even this week, have you received a merciful no? And has your heart been willing to say, I'm going to trust you anyway, Lord? I'm going to trust your merciful no for a better yes. Some of you have received better yeses. I'm going to tell you one of those stories next week. Buckle up. Our God keeps moving with power, and we're going to keep giving him our yes. Amen? Amen. This morning, here we're going. Jesus is hope for the hopelessly unclean. Can I read that one more time? Jesus is hope for the hopelessly unclean. Thank you, Jesus. Three points. Faithful pursuit, glimpses of God, and when hope finds you. First of all, faithful pursuit. This picture here is of Caesarea by the sea, which is exactly where our story takes place for this morning. This was from our last trip to Israel. The Caesarea was an important seaport for Rome. It was a Roman province. Uh, it's where things like in the book of Acts took place, like when, they, when Paul is taken to a prison in Caesarea. The, the ruins are actually right there. Um, you can see that. I'll show you another picture when we get to that passage. But this is real life, friends. And you get to go when, when we go to Israel together. Did I say that out loud? When, when we go to Israel together, you'll get to see this with your own two eyes, okay? Um, here you have Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion. And I want you to realize something. When... When, we, when we're talking about Roman centurions and it, the passage talks about him as a God-fearer, here's a good way to understand him. 
he was a Jewish Gentile. What do I mean by that? I mean, he wasn't actually a Jew. He was Jewish. He wanted to be like a Jew because he wanted to follow and honor Yahweh, their God. But as we looked at a couple weeks ago with the Ethiopian eunuch, that was an unwinnable, unwinnable paradigm for him. That equation was not going to ever end in his favor. Why? Because he could never become a Jew. He could never fully embrace. He wasn't born into that bloodline. Of course, he could convert. We're not going down that road. But he was not born into that bloodline. In fact, the eunuch himself was castrated. And you remember we talked about a couple weeks ago how that was most likely his own decision, trying to become something that he wasn't. And even the very act of castration guaranteed he would never be. We see in our, in, our, in our story for this morning another picture of someone who is hopelessly unchangeable by himself. Do you hear the echo of your own story here, friends? Even though he's hopelessly unchangeable, I want you to notice something from the beginning. This centurion faithfully pursues God. In our text, in the third verse, it says, in the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., which means he's doing something, he's keeping the hours. Every three hours, stopping to pray to God, Yahweh God, so that his heart and his mind are fixed on him. And it's in that context of faithfully pursuing that God meets him and gives him a vision. Please don't miss the big picture here. If you're someone who's saying, I want to hear God's voice more, I want to receive things like visions. I want to interact with him more. Be faithful to pursue him. Here's a great resource for you. We're using this as a staff and as a leadership team. Emotionally Healthy Spirituality Day by Day by Pete Scazzaro helps you to keep the hours. Now, this is just twice a day. You can do it in the morning and the afternoon. You can do it in the afternoon and the evening. You can do it in the morning and the evening. It doesn't matter. But it's just starting to build in rhythms where it's saying the tyranny of the, urgent, of the urgent in my life is not what's going to rule me. I'm going to build in anchors throughout my day so that I constantly turn my attention in his direction. And the point is not to religiously check boxes. Oh, I did it another, every three hours. I'm, I'm, I'm turning my attention to the Lord. No, the point is to always have your attention in his direction. The, the hours help with that. And so if you've never practiced it before, let me encourage you. It might be a good resource for you. Because what we see as this centurion gets a vision is our second point, glimpses of God. He gets a vision of an angel, and the message that the angel wants to give is that God sees you. God sees your faithful pursuit. He sees that you're generous with your money. He sees that you faithfully pursue him in word and in prayer. He sees that you're kind to your neighbors and friends. God sees you. Here's a man who's dealing with hopelessness, who's stuck in an identity that he cannot change in and of himself, and yet he's faithfully pursuing and probably wondering the whole time, does God see me? Is this making a difference? And God answers the cry of his heart. I do see you, and it has made a difference. Which is why you see passages like Psalm 27 and Matthew 7 with the same command for all of us. Seek my face. Ask, knock, seek, and you will find. There are seasons, friends, in our lives 
when it feels like we just keep going through the motions and nothing's happening. But can I encourage you, if you're in a season like that right now, to ask God if there's anything in you that you need to confess. You know what's the number one thing that gets in the way of our relationship with God? Sin. And we are oftentimes blind to our own. You know who's not blind to it? The one we're pushing away. Ask him. Show me my sin. See if there's any unright way within me. You know where that comes from? Psalm 139. Just ask. He's faithful to show. And then as he shows, confess and give up your right to hold on to it. But you know what oftentimes happens, and we're going to talk a little bit about this this morning? I'll give you a hint. This is where we're going. If you're angry with God, you're never going to do what I just asked you to do. And if you're hiding your anger, you're not fooling anyone. Glimpses of God. Meanwhile, it's not just Cornelius that gets a glimpse of God. It's also Peter who also at the very same time gets a vision of God. Hear this. This is the point. When we're the ones stuck in hopelessness and wondering, God, do you see me? We're also wondering this. God, are you doing anything? God, do you care? Why aren't you moving? Please do not presume to know what God's doing when you're asleep. Please do not presume to know what God is doing when you don't even know what the other side of the moon looks like, let alone where the Leviathan keeps his nest, let alone how the sun holds itself together. God is at work in ways we don't see or know. When we doubt that, here's what we're doing. We're saying, God, you're not good, so I don't trust you. And again, we may have reasons in our lives that we believe that. Perhaps today is the day God wants to heal some of that in you. Peter's vision is of a sheet that falls down from heaven with a bunch of unclean animals. The Levitical law was all about what you could eat, what you could not eat, where you could go, where you could not go, people you could hang out with, whose house you can go in, whose house you couldn't go in, because it was literally a law that's meant to, to describe this to the Israelites and to the watching world. God is holy, we are not. God is holy, we are not. God is choosing a people to set aside, which is what holy literally means, set aside, to pursue him and be holy as we were always intended to be. And Israel's lesson should have been this, we can't do it, we need you. But here's what they learned, we're better than you. All the other nations were better than you. It was the exact opposite, because they doubled down on their own ability rather than coming to the place where they saw the simple reality of grace. God, unless you do this for me, I have no hope. But God, if you will do this for me, I have every reason in the world to hope. He's not asking us to just work harder, friends. He's not asking us to even just believe harder. He's asking us to surrender, to hear it again and again and again. So the sheet comes down and has all these unclean animals on it, and it says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter's like, no, Lord. Now, those two words should never go together in the same sentence, right? No and Lord. It should be, yes, Lord, or no, because I'm Lord, right? But Peter says, no, Lord, you've got it wrong. Nota bene, right? Like, whenever you're saying no to God, you've probably missed something. Time to go back and reassess. God is faithful and patient with Peter, though. Because the same thing happens three times, and God does not send lightning to devour Peter. 
He gives Peter time. It's like that slow frost and thaw that happens every winter. Well, most winters, not so much this winter here, right? Where things freeze and then they unfreeze and they freeze and then they unfreeze. That's like our hearts. Our hearts are cold and hard. And God releases the warmth of his love and it thaws us. And then we're like, and then he releases some more. And every time there's more of our stony heart that breaks up like my driveway is currently breaking up, right? Like, and yet we want that to happen in our hearts, not so much in our driveways. We want our, our hearts to be broken up so that the stone is replaced with flesh. And that's what he's promised to do. And it's what he's doing here with Peter by simply being patient with him. Three times it happens, and three times Peter still doesn't get it until he goes and sees. Three times the same vision. What God has made clean, do not call unclean. Which means that the Israelites now get to eat bacon. Woo-woo, bacon! Any bacon lovers out there? Amen, amen. Proof that God loves us, right? But here's the thing. It wasn't just about bacon. It wasn't just about food that they were supposed to eat. Because the ceremonial laws included whole lots of things like the Gentiles being unclean simply because they're Gentiles. The Samaritans being unclean simply because they're Samaritans. That if you haven't followed the the clean laws, the Levitical laws, you are separate. And there is no hope, no change, no future until and unless you're changed. The entire system was being called to attention. And I want you to hear what Hebrews talks about when it mentions that Jesus is the telos. Telos is that Greek word. We've mentioned it a few times. It means the end, the fulfillment. He's the point of the whole story. Whenever we're, we're, we're getting caught up in our own frustrations, we're like, God, why aren't you doing it this way? And really what we mean is, God, why aren't you doing it my way? Please remember this. It's not your story. It's his story. History. It's his story. It's always been about him. And when it's about him, we find space for our stories to be called up into a much bigger one where he can do for us what we cannot do. But if it's all about me and my story, then I stay down here where I'm very small and weak and hopeless. Jesus is the telos. There's no more shadow. So I'm going to read a passage of scripture for you from Hebrews, and it's going to talk about a lot of things. And if you're newer to faith, you're going to be like, what does this even mean? He's going to say things like this. Jesus is the better high priest. He's the better Aaron. Aaron was only a shadow of what was going to come because Aaron was the one guy on earth who was able to go into the presence of God one time each year to make atonement for for God's people on, on behalf of the entire nation the high priest interceding on behalf of God's people. And Jesus says, I am that high priest, but I'm also the sacrifice. And what the high priest used to have to do year after year, I'm gonna do once for all. And when I do it once for all, it's not gonna be just for Israel, it's gonna be for the entire world. Come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let me read you what scripture says. Hebrews 9, 11 to 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. There's that high priest language. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. 
thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, here in this whole line right here, the Levitical law, the clean laws, all of the crazy sacrifices they had to do, it served a purpose. But how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, will he purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? Do you hear it? Do you hear it? There was a purpose, and it was to point forward to what Jesus was going to do. That said, there used to be these hardline divisions of who was clean and who was unclean, and Israel was supposed to get this message. We're all unclean. We all need God. It wasn't Israel's better, and Israel's going to look down their noses on everyone. That's the universal human condition. It was, we all need him, and they missed it, and we missed it, and we miss it. Especially when we say things like, I like this part about God, but not this part. So I'll take this, and I'll leave this aside. Who's in the driver's seat there? Why do we wonder why things don't change? When we say, I I want your way, God, but that way hurts too much, so I'll kind of wait back here until you fix something, and then I'll step in. That ain't the way it works. But because Jesus did what he did, hear the therefore. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean, do you hear it? Sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Unclean, in Christ, now clean. Do you hear it? Let us draw near with confidence, not doubt, not wondering, is this this for me? Is it even possible? But in Christ, now clean clean. What does that look like, right? Because we talk about this a lot, praise God, but God wants us to unpack this some so we get it in our lives. That's our third point, when hope finds you. Well, first of all, Peter does the math here. He realizes by the end that God isn't just talking about food. He's actually talking about people, so to not call any person unclean right? That that Jesus came to do exactly what he did. He wasn't abolishing the law, but fulfilling the law. That's what Jesus promised, right? I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And then after the resurrection, he's walking on the road to Emmaus, and he explains to the disciples all the ways that the law, the prophets, and the writings, translation, the entire Old Testament is fulfilled in him. Jesus came to do what we could not do for ourselves, Peter does the math, but Peter, please don't miss this, knows this pursuit. You see, Peter's talking to Cornelius about a way that Cornelius has been full of shame and stuck in a way that he could not change. How ironic that Peter would be the spokesperson. Peter, the rock on which I will build my church, Peter, the first disciple to declare, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
Peter, the one at the Last Supper who said, even if everyone else betrays you, I never will. Peter, the one that Jesus said, this night before the rooster crows, you won't just betray me once, you'll deny me three times. And that is precisely what Peter does. Could you imagine the shame that Peter wore from that day forward? I denied my Lord. I gave in to fear. I was not the person that he asked me to be, that I wanted to be. I failed in a way I cannot take back. How many of us are familiar? Do not raise your hand, but just acknowledge in your soul if you know that story in your own life. Hear this, because twice before John 21, Jesus appeared to the disciples, twice, right? Peter's, Peter and John run to the tomb, and it's empty, and they, they don't know what to do, so they go back, and they're in the upper room, and they're all afraid, and the door's locked, and who walks through the door? Yes, through the door, Jesus. And to show them that he's not a ghost, he eats stuff right? And he's like, put your hand on my side and, and touch, touch my hands. And, and, and he shows him that he is the Christ. And then again, he does it because Thomas isn't there and Thomas is the doubter. And so twice, Jesus has already appeared to them and said nothing to Peter. Could you imagine what's going through Peter's heart and soul in that moment? I'm a fraud. I'm a loser. I denied him, and he knows it, which is why he isn't saying anything at all. We're in agreement. I should just leave. So he does. He goes off to the Sea of Galilee. He returns to his old life as a fisherman. And while he's fishing, all night long he catches nothing. And all of a sudden this dude on the shore calls to him, and he says, Children, because there are other people in the boat. Children, have you caught anything? And right away, it, 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 it enlivens something in Peter because the very first interaction that Peter had with Jesus, he asked the same question. Peter had been out fishing all night, caught nothing. And Jesus asked, have you caught anything? And in the same way he did the first time, he says, why don't you try putting your nets on the right side of the boat? Could you imagine what was going through Peter's heart in that very moment? Could this be? No. Is he coming for me? Maybe. But it says they can't pull the nets up because they're so full of fish, just like the first time. The first time they did it, do you remember Peter's response? When he first met Jesus, it says he got down on his knees before Jesus, and he says, get away from me, I am, what's the word? Unclean. He knew there was something inside of him that was broken beyond his repair. And even though he loved the love of Jesus and loved the friendship he had, that thing was still broken. Peter knew it, and he thought Jesus knew it too, and they both knew that while God's grace was for everyone else, it was not enough for Peter, until Jesus comes to Peter, declares it's I, 
Have you found, have you caught any fish? Try the other side. And as soon as the fish are too much to pull into the boat, it says Peter puts on his, clo- his tunic, his outer garment, and jumps in the water 100 yards from shore and swims to Jesus because if there's any chance that after knowing all that he knows and being exposed that he was, the way that he was, that Jesus was going to restore him, Peter had to be all in because this was the one thing he was looking for his whole life, hope. Hope. Notice the setting. Jesus invites Peter to sit around a fire. What was Peter doing when he denied Jesus three times? Sitting around a fire. Jesus asked Peter, how many times do you think he's going to ask Peter? Three times. Because he denied him three times. So he's restoring him each time. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you, Lord. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you, Lord. Peter, do you love me? Why do you keep asking if I love you? You know I love you. Then feed my sheep with the grace that I've just given you. I see you. I've known you all along. And that's why I came to find you. Now go feed my sheep. Friends, that's the kind of grace that isn't cheap or petty that doesn't say, oh, you're okay just the way you are, Peter. Peter knew he wasn't okay. And he knew he needed a God who was able to do something with a thing that's not okay that even Peter could not describe. And that God, that Savior, has a name. And it's Jesus. It's the Savior who says to every one of us, come. Because you see, it wasn't just Peter. Peter gave that away then to Cornelius. Cornelius is a guy who's also stuck, who doesn't have hope, who has no way forward. And all of a sudden, he receives something that changes even the law, something that changes him from the inside out. He doesn't need to change his ethnicity. God was changing his eternity. And when he tasted that, everything lesser simply fell away. Friends, where are you stuck believing the lie that you know how broken you really are? And God knows it too. And that's why you hate him. You've never used those words before. That's why you're so angry. Because he knows And we both know that grace is not going to be enough for me. I'm unclean. I'm unchangeable. I'm unfixable. I'm unwelcome. I'm un-everything. I don't have hope. Where are you holding on to that lie? Where are you living in the wrong story with the wrong star? You are not the star of this story. It's his story. And you're in it. You're an extra. You're over here. You play a part for 30 seconds and then you're done. Please, no disrespect in saying that. It's just putting it in perspective that says, if the one who is the star, if the one who has the ability, if the one who is able and faithful is calling you to a different way, don't pretend like he's not. Don't keep putting yourself in his place and then wondering why it's not working out. Let me illustrate this to you in terms of the heart of the Father. Through a movie that I watched again for the first time last year, 
that absolutely rocked my world. It's called Blood Diamond. And I don't know if you've seen it, but if you haven't, you need to. It is not easy to watch. I do not recommend it for children, but I absolutely recommend it for you. Here's why. It takes place in Sierra Leone over this thing called Conflict Diamonds, which was a a much bigger thing back in the early 2000s. I hope there has been some change there. I have my doubts. But Conflict Diamonds are diamonds that are basically mined and found in conflict areas. And so people lose limbs, lose lives, lose families, all for the diamond district, all so that we can put diamonds and rings and propose to our fiancés with them, our girlfriends. It's, it's, it's a gut, gut-wrenching heart check, right? What happens in places like Sierra Leone is you get these warlords who go around literally kidnapping little boys and abusing them in every way, shape, and form. And teaching them to murder, to do unthinkable things to other people. This is the picture of the warlord in the movie. And then you have Solomon, who's the father in this movie. You follow his story the entire time as he literally lets nothing get in the way of his pursuit of his family, and specifically of his son, Dia, who was taken by the warlord and abused and hurt in ways unthinkable and made to do unthinkable things. This is Dia. And I apologize for the gun picture. I made it small on purpose. This is the scene at the end of the movie when the father, Solomon, has risked everything to chase down Dia, to find him. He has gone to battle with the warlords. He has won unthinkable victories. He has risked his life over and over and over again. He's been taken captive and set free and broken bonds and and been shot at and, 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 and in every way abused. He has chased down and finally found his son. He has set him free. They've run from the warlord. And now he's going and he's getting this diamond that he hid in the dirt so that he can be free and his family can be free and they can start a new life. And all of a sudden, his son picks up the gun and, hear this, points it at his father. And it's shocking how much that hit home. Not simply because of my my own history growing up. But because what that history taught me about my heart towards God. You know, you know what's been done to me. You know what I've done. And we both know that while there's grace for everyone else, that unfixable part of me We know, we know what that's gonna cause in me. We know where I'm going. I'm a pastor, I'm 45 years old. I know that's hard to believe. (laughs) 
spent my entire life, my entire adult life following Jesus. I was saved at 20. And the entire time I lived believing the lie that my Father in heaven couldn't possibly love me. And so like Dia, when that father came close, really close, and Dia was about to be exposed as a murderer, as an abuser, as one who's been abused in unthinkable ways, what Dia knew was, there's no way anyone could love me here even and especially my father. So I'm going to keep him and everyone else as far away from me as possible. Do you know this pain, friends? Do you know that fear and hurt and shame that says, I am unlovable? God agrees. And there's no changing that. Because if you do, here are the words that Solomon proclaims over his son as he literally walks towards the gun. He says, I know they made you do bad things, but you are not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you and you will come home with me and be my son again. Do you hear the identity language declared in that statement, father to son? The trap, friends, says if your father knew, he would reject you. In fact, he already has. The truth, beloved, is that your father already knows. And he loves you. That's why he's come and risked everything and given up everything for you. There is no one on the face of this planet who is unfixable. There is no one who, when you come to Christ, is, not, is unclean. Everyone is clean. Everyone is washed. Everyone is made new. For when we put our faith in him, the old is gone. The new has come. Or like the prophet Ezekiel says, I will sprinkle you with clean water and I will make you clean. I will pour my Holy Spirit out upon you and I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. The liar wants you to think that the Father in heaven could never love you because of what you've done. But in Christ, our Father has already shown us that's precisely why he's come, because he does love you, and he does know, and he wants you to be free today. New, clean, whole. Let's pray.
How do you know us so well, Lord? I'm so thankful that you do. God, the temptation in in my life and in all of our lives is, is to pretend, to play the game, to do what we know to do, to believe half truths, because down deep we're so broken we don't know what to do with it. We have become our sin and we think that is our identity. But I praise you that your promise to pursue us all the way down to the bottom, to bring to completion the work that you've begun in us is true and right and good. That you are not ashamed. You are not ashamed of me. You're not ashamed of us. your children and today you want us to come home with you set us free today Lord God from captivity to old lies and old wounds that we've believed our whole lives and not realized but the fruit has shown itself We've chosen self-protection. We've picked up the gun of self-protection and we've pointed it at you, thinking you are the one who's always believed the lie that the enemy of our souls taught us when we were kids. Forgive us, Lord God. And wash us clean. We choose to put down that gun right now. We put it down. In Jesus' name, we surrender our souls to you, Lord. You're the one who's always loved us. You're the one who's always pursued us. And today we get to taste and see that a little bit more. Hallelujah. We praise you, Jesus. We ask, please keep it going. For some of us, Lord, it's old wounds that you need to, to reveal because we don't see them. Would you take us down that path and show us, God, right now? And even as you show us those wounds, Lord, would you step in and heal them in Jesus' name? We renounce the lies and the vows that we've made because of those wounds, Lord Jesus, in your name. We put on the truth today that in Christ we are children of the living God, loved all the way down to the bottom. Keep showing us where we invite you in now.